use some of it to make the world better. Or we're waiting until we have enough power to make our move. Well, the message of Easter is actually very, very good news for people who feel like that. So it essentially says three things. Firstly, the decisive moment to enable the potential of change has happened. Secondly, that there's a certain set of experiences that can bring about personal change that can enable us then to join with God in his plan and his mission of changing the world. So that's where we're going this morning. The decisive moment, that's what we celebrate, that's why we've come this morning. And I want to take our thoughts on the resurrection today from John's Gospel. We're going to read a bit in a moment, but let me just set the context. Can anyone without looking remember the first three words of John's Gospel? <laughs> More than one of you. <laughs> in the beginning. And where, what does that remind us of? When we read those words in the New Testament, where does it take our minds if they're steeped in the Old Testament? <laughs> so John is clearly saying, what John is saying, as you read this Gospel, and John's Gospel is the most theologically layered or textured of all the Gospels, He's saying, as you read this story of Jesus, keep thinking back to those first early chapters, where firstly everything starts so wonderfully, and then it all goes so wrong. Remember not just chapters 1 and 2, creation and all its beauty and wonder, but chapter 3, which is the fall. Where sin and death and difficulty get into every part of creation, literally the physical creation. We have earthquakes and tsunamis and warming and cooling climates because of what happened in Genesis 3. Before the fall, work was just fulfilling and a joyful thing to take part in. Since, for the majority of, world, of mankind, it has been backbreaking and soul-destroying. Before then, relationships were wonderful. Adam and Eve were naked. They were transparent with one another. Within several chapters, we have Cain, one brother, and Abel with conflicts so great that one will kill the other. Families falling apart. And we have a destruction of the spiritual in us, our, our seeking, our longing for God. In chapters 1 and 2, Adam and Eve walk in the cool of the evening with God. By chapter 3, they have been cast out and they're trying to find some way back. Everything is different. Everything has been affected. So John, in those first three words, in the beginning, is saying, look out. Because something has now happened which reverses all of that. Something has happened which will ultimately put creation back together again. Something has happened which will give your work meaning, your relationships, transparency and richness and intimacy 
as well as an ability to connect with the divine. And those religions keep popping up right the way through John's Gospel. We've not got time to remind you of them all now, but we'll go right to the end of chapter 19, just before the resurrection. Do you know what it says? It says that Jesus is laid in a tomb where no one has ever been placed before in the garden. None of the other Gospel writers mention the garden. Last time we were in the garden, everything was fracturing. Now we have a tomb where there has never been death before. This is a different garden. This is a garden without destruction. And then John chapter 20, the start of the resurrection narrative. The first words of that, anyone want to have a go at the first words of John chapter 20? On the first day of the week. John is full of sevens. We've already had seven days. What John is saying is this is the start of a new age. And we have Mary, her eyes full of tears, and she sees a man... And she thinks it's the garden. Now last time we had a garden in the scriptures, it was Adam. He was responsible for all that decay, all that destruction, all that brokenness. But now we've got a new Adam. And this one is trustworthy, but we've just read how he's lived for the last three years. But he's not an Adam that is dying, he's an Adam that's come to life, but is still now caring for the garden. And so right the way through John's Gospel is these constant hints. New creation, new creation, new creation. It's all gone wrong, but it can all be put back together again. That's the context for the words that we're going to read. Here they are, John 20, verse 19. This is the evening, approximately 2,000 years ago. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them. And he said, Peace be with you. And he said this, he showed them, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. A decisive event, the resurrection. A set of experiencing, experiences that transform these individuals. These disciples, the first thing that they did was that they saw the resurrection, a resurrected body. Jesus stands amongst them and we're told that they look at his scars in his hands and his side. What they're looking at has never happened in history before. This is not like Lazarus or others who have been said had been resurrected. For Lazarus was to die again, but what the disciples were looking at was a man who was now alive who would never die. They were looking at the first instance of new creation. I doubt they understood fully what they were looking at, who they were touching. 
But this was the moment that must have changed everything for them. We know the story of how after that they spread out and in the end they filled the known world of the time taking the message that Jesus is alive. Many of them died for their faith, imitating their Saviour as they go. Why? Why did these fishermen, these largely uneducated individuals, step that way? I want to suggest it's because they saw they'd seen a resurrected body. Natalie hinted at this, I think, when she prayed. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So it's right at the linchpin of everything that we think about today. Now the disciples saw Jesus bodily for future generations. The countless millions that have come since then, they have not seen Jesus bodily resurrected. And yet somehow it has propelled them forwards too. For some of them it has been rational argument that has led them to a conviction about the resurrection. Lee Strobel's famously was the lead investigative reporter at the Chicago Tribune. He said that he gave two years to studying the claims of the resurrection as if he was looking at any other investigative story. The result? Lee Strobel's decided the resurrection had happened and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Others of us have come to conviction about the resurrection because of an experience. As I wonderfully shared last Sunday about her experience on the Alpha Holy Spirit Day. She said as a spiritual person, that's what James said. That's what Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. So for some it was through rational thinking. For others, it was through a spiritual experience. Or for others of us, it might be like a friend of Philip of mine, who's finding faith at the moment. He said, I decided that I would try on my faith as I would try on clothes I was shopping for. If you go shopping, you try something on, and you look in the mirror, and you say, does this fit? And does this work? And our friend said that as he started to take that approach to faith, he's found that it does fit. And it does work very powerfully for him indeed. Now I want I just want to remind you this morning that he is risen. And I want to encourage you to think back to what brought you, if you have that conviction, what brought you to that conviction. Whether it was a set of rational arguments, a spiritual experience, or simply it works. And frankly, for me, it's become all three of those. But I want to encourage you to go back to that point and allow that to give you energy and conviction and va-va-boo, that we wouldn't have otherwise. For that is what they had, and that's what propelled them out. The first part of that experience was they saw something. The second part of that experience was they heard something. They heard his words. One imagines that the Hebrew word that Jesus would have used here is shalom, peace be with you. It could be translated wholeness is restored. It was a declaration. It was a moment of hope. He was declaring what had happened, but also what could happen for individuals. 
as you go straight to to you the, those that you forgive can be forgiven. He's saying that in the middle of all this life-changing event of the resurrection, or creation-changing event of the re resurrection, that there's possibilities for you and me, for new starts, for fresh forgiveness, and for new life. And then they feel his breath. They see him, they hear him, and then they feel his breath as he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's more Genesis allusions. Just as the Father had breathed on the first man, Adam, and he came to life, so Jesus is now breathing on the disciples and calling them to new life. So you don't have to wait for Pentecost to receive an empowering of the Holy Spirit. But that is also available today as well. So on this Easter Sunday, can I just ask you, have you had those three experiences? Have you seen the resurrected body? Have you heard the words, the greeting, wholeness restored, shalom? And have you had the Father breathe on you, or the Son breathe on you, with the Spirit, with power of new creation? Bono said, I can't change the world, but I can change the world in me. I think he's wrong on both counts. I don't think we can change the world in us by ourselves, but I think with God's grace, anything is possible in terms of personal transformation. And then I think with that too, there is an invitation to play our part in changing the world. And this is the third part that Jesus then invites us to join him on his mission. Is what he says. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. It's an invitation. A confession now. Philip and I have indulged ourselves recently with a couple of the Mission Impossible films. <laughs> you know the deal. <laughs> this is your mission, should you choose to accept it. A mission requires an acceptance of it. And so Jesus says there is a mission for all of us. Will you accept it? Will you engage and go, I will follow you on your mission of shalom, of restoring all things? What's most striking to me is that Jesus seems so confident that these guys could bring about the renewal we promised. To go back to the beginning of John Mayer, they had no money or status with which to get the job done. The power at the time was in far away Rome. These guys were not members of the Roman elite or even Jerusalem's elite. There's no best-selling artists, no bankers or celebrities here. But that's the seems matter to Jesus. He apparently thought that they could do it just fine. So I've been thinking about this, I've come across a wonderful essay by a hero originally Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic, Victor Havel. He wrote an essay called Power to the Powers. Here's what he said. He said, the power that helped so many during the time of Soviet domination, communist totalitarian domination of Eastern Europe, he said, the power that helped people was not actually the authorities. 
He said there weren't enough of them to hold everyone in check. He said that what held people in bondage was the fact that individuals lived out this way of doing life as if it were true, even though they knew it wasn't. They kept the system going. They lived as if they were powerless. So what does Victor Hegel say you should do? He says, don't bother with political parties. This is as the future president of Czechoslovakia and then Czechoslovakia. He says, don't bother with political parties and don't join the underground resistance. He said, what's needed is for individuals to, what he, his term, was to live out the truth. To live another higher reality than they were to live, rather than the deceit of totalitarianism. I wonder whether the same applies to us today. Most of us live most of the time as if the resurrection hasn't happened. Or that it has somehow retreated in our lives to the status of myth. What would it look like for you to live today or tomorrow with the resurrection having really happened? Would you live with more confidence more resolution that the power of the resurrection is alive in you. Would you be more public about what you believe? I checked this morning, 57% of Britons in a poll early in 2023 said they believed the resurrection had happened. Maybe living aware of the resurrection to take the mission that God has given me right now and to live it out passionately, intentionally, and with purpose. I don't know whether the Christians in East Germany at the time that Victor Hegel wrote his essay on Power for the Paris ever got to read it. But they lived it out. Let me just give you context. Remember Germany, 1980s. This is the scene of the standoff between the two nuclear powers of the age. If there was anywhere where the world was going to be destroyed, it was here in Germany. And so in 1982, a young pastor, his first name was Christian, put a sign out outside his church in Leipzig. It said, prayers for peace, all welcome. He was essentially inviting people to live in another reality. He was essentially saying, live a different sort of way, although just coming to church at that time could cause somebody to lose their job. For the first few years, between seven and a dozen people turned up. But during the, 19, during the 1980s, life started to change in the Soviet Union. Seven years after he started, there were, were 8,000 people who filled the church. By this point in time, there's, the atmosphere in the city is on life edge. There is talk of the fall of communism. The authorities are muttering about stopping the prayer meeting by whatever means are necessary. There are tanks in the streets that are snipers on the rooftops around the church. And there are doctors setting up makeshift field hospitals anticipating the worst. They gather and they spend an hour praying for peace in the church building 
before starting to march silently with candles and prayers. Within a week, this peace prayer rally has grown to 120,000 people. The East German leader has been forced to resign. Within a fortnight, there's 300,000 attracted to pray for peace. And within a month, four weeks later to the day, the Berlin Wall comes tumbling down. Some historians have argued that the Leipzig prayer rallies were the tipping point in the fall of East German communism. One communist official simply said we were prepared for every eventuality, but not for candles and prayers. This was an invitation to live in a different reality. That is the invitation of Easter Sunday for us all today. Let me finish with just one final example of this. This time rather than Berlin in the 1980s, are you ready? We're going to Carthage in the second century. Imagine the amphitheatre in Carthage on a public holiday with crowds filling the seats. Roman society, even in, in North Africa, was highly stratified. So you could tell who the most powerful were, the local politicians, the celebrities, the landowners, they had the prime seats. As the seats fell, came down, so people reduced in status until they got to the bottom, where there were the gladiators, the criminals, and the animals. Amongst the criminals, were a dozen Christians who had been arrested for their faith. They had been out of the amphitheatre and they had been mauled by the wild animals and so the crowd was shouting for them to come into the centre of the amphitheatre so that everybody could watch the gladiators finish them off. And so the Christians came from different parts of the amphitheatre towards the centre. And as they came, instinctively, and without thinking about it, with thinking about it, they started to greet one another with a kiss. Now, at the time, that was the greeting, you kissed someone, but you were very aware of your social rank. So if you were to greet the emperor, you might kiss the edge of his robe, or his knee, or his ring, or his finger, depending on your status. But here the Christians, women and men, Slaves and free, high-born and low-born, kissed each other on the level. This was, without even thinking about it, shortly before death, an insistence on living in a different reality. These Christians had already caused a commotion the night before when they had a meal together and broken bread together. And onlookers had been shocked at the peace and the sense of celebration with which they ate. It was said that some of those watching came to faith at that moment because of the way the Christians were living. If you wanted to read an account of this amazing moment in the amphitheatre in Carthage, you could do so by picking up a book entitled Patient Ferment, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. It's essentially the author is making the point I'm making this morning. 
He's saying that for years the Christians decided to live, for centuries the Christians decided to live in a different reality. Acknowledging the resurrection. And in the end that became an unstoppable force of salt and light and goodness and it literally changed the world. My question to you, what would it look like for you to live in another reality? If I was critiquing my own sermon this morning, here's what I would say. Good opening song. <laughs> Some decent theological points. Some good stories. Light on application. But as I've thought about it, and I've not been able to get to the application, I've concluded that the application is very personal on this occasion. What does it mean for you to live in the light of the resurrection? Maybe that's a decision left for you and the Holy Spirit. I want to finish with these words from our Czech dissident friend, Victor Hegel. He says this. He says, the real question is whether the brighter future is always so distant. What if, on the contrary, it had been here for a long time already? And only our blindness and our weakness has prevented us from seeing it around us and within us and kept us from developing. Let's thank you, shall we? Right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the one who has brought new creation, has brought aromas, tastes, foretastes of what is to come. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends here this morning. I want to pray that this Easter we would each experience something of the presence, the power, the life and the energy of that resurrection. Just give a moment here. If you want Jesus to breathe over you with his breath, as he did over the disciples on that Easter Sunday, just encourage you to lift your head to him. Just now. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you breathe your life. Again, you breathe that resurrection life, that new creation life. May we know your joy. May we know your peace. Teach us to live in the light of the resurrection we pray. In Jesus' name, for his glory, for the sake of the world. Amen.